0: This morning we are in uh, Second Peter. We are coming to the conclusion of this letter. Uh, the Apostle Peter writing to scattered believers um, throughout Asia Minor addressing the topic of false teachers specifically in this letter. They're on the horizon in Peter's time. They're coming. That's what he's warning them about. They're going to come. You're going to see them. You're going to encounter them. They're going to come with doctrines that are false. They're going to come and try to, (coughs) excuse me, um, pull you away from the truth. They're going to seek to do that. And uh, he is giving them that warning. And in specifically in chapter 3, he is refuting, Peter is refuting their false teaching regarding the second coming of Christ. They are mocking the idea that Christ is going to come again. And they're mocking the idea especially because they don't want that judgment that's associated with Christ's return. And so let me pick up in verse 10 of chapter 3. Our focus will be uh, down in 14 and following, but let me just give the context here uh, beginning in verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, contrary to what, this isn't in the text, I'm saying this, contrary to what the false teachers are saying, that no judgment is coming. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord, you may recall, is a term, Old Testament term, for a time when God will judge, come in judgment, a time when right, all, several events surrounding the second coming of Christ, but it, it's known as a time of judgment. It's a time that's, it's a word that's used in the Old Testament to refer to when the God will pour out his judgment and take back this earth. It's uh, really highlighted for us in the book of Jonah. You may recall a few weeks ago, I took us through parts of the book of Jonah, looking at the day of the Lord and how Jonah compares it to the locust invasion that had occurred in Judea and how destructive that invasion of locusts was. And he uses that as an example of day of the Lord and what this will be like. And it will come like a thief, Peter says, in verse 10 of chapter 3, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, he makes this statement. This is not really a question, this is more an exclamation. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He's saying in light of the fact that all things are going to be destroyed in this way and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and Christ is going to come back, he says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? How excellent should you be? That's basically what he's saying here, exclamation point. It's not a question. Conform your lives to the reality of eternity is what he's saying in that statement. And then he goes on to say, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Interesting day of God used in this verse, day of Lord used in verse 10. Some commentators think they are the same thing, day of the Lord and day of God. Uh, I think there is a distinction made here that's worth noting. It seems the day of God is associated specifically with a new heaven and a new earth. It seems that the day of God is associated with Revelation twenty one, twenty two. It seems the day of God is about what Paul was talking about when God is all in all. You have the day of man, and then you have the day of God. You have the time when God is everything, every everything. Everything is about God. Complete righteousness rules. You see that. Notice, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which uh, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for, I believe this is what the day of God is, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A time when there will be no more sin. A time when God, God will be in everything, will be, it will be His day. And total righteousness, total holiness in that day. No more sin. I believe that's different, and a different distinction than the day of the Lord, which seemed to be more about the events surrounding the second coming of Christ and, and all the judgments associated with that. Then he goes on to say in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, "...as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction." You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen what i've been trying to show you last week and i'll continue this week is just say basically some duties duties that peter lays out for us in these concluding verses of second peter duties that we are to give attention to as we wait for his return to 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 respond to the statement what people should you be kind of people should you be in light of eternity approaching Last week, I took you to the first one. You see that in verse uh, 14. Uh, I took you to the word, excuse me, I took you to the word, um, let me find it, Uh, 12, I'm sorry, looking for, um, notice the word looking for is found in verse 12, 13, and 14. Looking for, looking for, looking for. The first duty that we have is to be expectant Of his coming the first duty that we have is not to get so bound up in this world that we lose sight of the fact that this this is not all there is that there is a new world coming where Christ where God will reign and we're to be looking for that day this is not our home we are not to become attached to this world we're to be expectant we're not to be attached to things that do not last. That is our tendency, to latch on to things that are temporary. This is a reminder to set your mind on eternal things. Um, we, we can enjoy things in this life, no doubt, but we don't let them take hold of us, or nor do we hold on to them. And it all reminds us, as I told you last week, that history is headed in a direction. It is going somewhere. Uh, we are not just stagnant we are not just uh, here by chance we are not just here by a bunch of unrelated unconnected events happening everything is working toward the culmination of all things in Christ that is where we're headed that's the direction we are going in evil is running its course we see that all around us we're living in Romans chapter 1 right now in our country in our world we're seeing evil speeding up rapidly rapidly and it's only going to get worse, folks. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse. But we know that one day He will return, and He will bring in His kingdom and His righteousness. And, uh, and that's why I mentioned to you that we are looking for that day of God. Um, we're expectant. We've been born for such a time as this, And we're to be the expectant ones of this generation that we are in right now. And the children that are born to us, they are born for this time as well. God's made no mistakes. And we are to be faithful to these duties. And the first one is to be expectant, realizing this is not all there is. One day, man's day will be over, and it will be God's day where righteousness dwells. And we are to recognize that he's put us here for a reason. Verse uh, 12 also says, we are to hasten. Notice how that's worded. We are in hastening the coming of the day of God. I told you last time, how do I hasten something? How do I accelerate something? And we looked last week at we are to proclaim the gospel. Uh, We are told that uh, when the gospel has been preached to the whole world, we're told that the reason for the patience of God and, and, and having not returned yet is because of the elect who are still to be brought into the kingdom. And we are to participate in God's sovereign hand because people must hear the gospel. Uh, we have a part in that. Uh, we have a part in, in God's sovereign plan for reaching and saving people. And what accelerates and hastens the day of his coming is when all of the elect will one day be saved. And so there's a part that we play in that um, and we uh, are instruments in that. God uses human instruments to accomplish his divine work and sovereign work. He uses, we are the means by which he accomplishes that sovereign work. That's what we mean when we say hasten his coming, accelerate his coming. Um, And uh, he doesn't desire any to perish. And so in accord with his sovereignty, we're to preach the gospel. And now today, I take you to the third point. You see this in verse 14. Look at verse 14 of Second of Peter 3. This is the passage, the verse I want to spend a little time on. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Then move into verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. I came across this this past week. I thought this was kind of interesting, a little history about Bible churches, uh, of which we would associate with, we're a Bible church, uh, non-denominational Bible church. Uh, That's sort of our roots. These kind of churches began in the 1950s. Uh, They came out of, uh, at that time, out of Dallas Seminary in Texas, and were sort of in the Midwest and, and the West were more prominent areas of the country where they were located at. Uh, But they were, it was a sort of a movement by Christians who were discouraged with their denominations. Uh, Christians who were discouraged because their denominations had gone more liberal, had turned away from the Bible, and were starting to um, just go into politics and social issues and those kinds of things. And these were a group of Christians that really wanted to look at the Bible and understand what the Bible taught. And that's sort of the history of the, the Bible church movement uh, in this country. Um, the, the movement was interesting, though. It began, it began to be defined a lot by eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. Um, it, seemed to, it seemed to be um, noted that within a lot of these churches, eschatology was talked about a lot. Eschatology was promoted a lot. Understanding eschatology and getting the details right in eschatology and understanding all the charts of eschatology. Last things was very important in this, um, in this movement. You would go to the prophecy conferences, and that's what was talked about all the time, those issues. But what was missing, and I maybe some of you who have been through the history of this church would agree with me on this, but what was missing a lot of times was evangelism, and living a holy life. Those things were missing. It was, it, was, it was important to have your eschatology right and even some other doctrines right, but the issue of taking the gospel into the world and the issue of living a holy life, those things weren't talked about much. Um, you, were, you were evaluated on spiritual maturity by how much you knew, how smart you were, how biblically literate you were, rather than the quality of your life and what kind of life you were living. I'm not saying this was everyone who was in that, uh, but there seemed to be a steady diet of end times teaching. Um, and not so much on how shall we then live teaching, um, to borrow from Francis Schaeffer. And I don't want to at least point a finger at the past because we can fall into that even now uh, where we are you know, just focused on, focused on easy doctrines, doctrines that are outside of us. The so doctrines where I don't really have to talk about me. I don't have to get beneath the surface type doctrines. Eschatology really doesn't let you see what I'm like. It just lets you see what I know. But, eschat- but it's just interesting. Uh, we, we want to think about this morning in these, this particular verse on, on what we're like. Um, and he lists some qualities there. But uh, notice, if you will, just hold your hand in 2 Peter and turn over to 1 John chapter 2 for a moment. 1 John chapter 2, it says in verse 28. I'm just showing you the connection here of second coming and how I live my life. That's what I'm trying to show you the connection to. 1 John 2, 28. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. See, the return of Christ, that verse says, should affect us. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. There's a possibility that verse says that he could return and you could be filled with shame because you weren't pursuing a life that you knew was pleasing to him. I'm not talking here, folks, about earning your way to heaven. You don't work to earn your way to heaven. All we're talking about here is the proof that real transformation has happened in you. That's all. I'm not talking about working for your salvation. We're talking about working out your salvation. Go down to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Notice in verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, second coming talk here, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, what he is saying, thought of his return, when he one day, this is glorification, when he one day brings salvation to its culmination, he says, we don't just sit back and say, I can't wait for that day. He says, it's to make us want to purify ourselves. Purify ourselves when we think of the Lord's return. It should have a purifying effect on us. And you see that in these verses back in 2 Peter. As we look at verse 14, if you'll go back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. So verse 14, once again, let me read it again. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, these things are the second coming events. Um, You're looking for a place where righteousness dwells. You're looking for a place where God is all in all. You're looking for that place. One day when I don't have to deal with sin personally, one day when I don't have to live in a, a world full of sin and evil. He says, you want to be You're expecting that. You're looking for that. He says, you want to be that person now. We need to start practicing that. That is the reason for the word be diligent. See that in verse 14? Be diligent. Be diligent. The the word implies this. The word implies this is not something that's natural to you and me. It's not natural to you and me to do what he's fixing to say. I've got to be diligent to do it. When you tell someone to be diligent, you're not just saying, oh, just do whatever you want. No, you're telling them you've got to be diligent in this. You've got to be disciplined in this. You've got to put some forth, some kind of effort in this. I really enjoy the, the book we've been going through in our small groups and, and, and igniting your passion for God. And I think part of this is, is what... In, Motivates diligence is a passion for God. It's the Spirit working in us. Now, this isn't a human effort thing. Some people don't like the word diligence because it just sounds that way to them. Oh, you're just talking about a lot of uh, just grinding it out talk. You're talking a lot, a lot of um, just gritting your teeth talk. You know, so a lot of people don't like that view of of, of diligence. The word diligence. But uh, that's the word he uses here. And Peter likes that word, by the way. It's like the third time, fourth time he's used it in this short letter. I'll show you an example of that in just a moment. But this is our view of sanctification, friends. This is how we view sanctification. It's not just uh, God coming in and just taking over and doing everything. That's not sanctification, Justification, yes. Justification, God does something to you apart from your works. God does something. That's justification. God opens your eyes. He blind, uh, your blind eyes are open. Your deaf ears hear. For the first time, you are know you are loved by God. You're a child of God. The world doesn't understand what just happened to you. We just read that, but that's your new position before God. He does that work. But sanctification, no. It's not let go and let God. Sanctification, as we've said on many times, is diligence, discipline. It's even denying yourself. It's denying yourself. It's almost like you turn against yourself. I know what self wants to do. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. It's denying self. So, we have to be Diligent, and you see an athlete performing, and and you're amazed, and you think, "Wow, how do they do that?" And and uh, golly, and but you don't see all the behind the scenes, the special diet, the, the 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 amount of time they put into training, and being away from family and friends, and sacrificing relationships, and all of those things just to win a crown that fades. But we are looking for one that never fades. And you know the verse, I don't have to have you all turn there, but Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, I've taken you there many times before, but he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that you, not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you. And I like this part, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He puts the willingness in your heart for this. He puts the willingness in your heart, the desire in your heart for what I'm talking about this morning. I feel very comfortable talking to a group of Christians about this subject on diligence because it rings true in your heart. Whether I practice it or not is something else, but at least in our hearts we know this is what God says. This is what God wants. And He is the one that gives me the willingness and the desire To do it Peter says there's a day coming of righteousness a world coming of righteousness you should be diligent and holy now that's his point I told you Peter likes that word go back to second Peter still in the same book one uh, two chapters go back to chapter one In 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to look at verse 5, but prior to verse 5, he has just gotten through saying that we have become partakers of the divine nature. He talks about we've been elect and chosen, but we've been become partakers of the divine nature. Therefore, we look at verse 5, and he says, now for this very reason, notice, applying all diligence. The first part, that's what God did to you. Made you a partaker of the divine nature. He put Christ in you. He put the Holy Spirit in you. And verse 5 says, Now, applying all diligence in your faith. And he keeps, these are the things you add to your faith. You add moral excellence. To moral excellence you add knowledge. Knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance. Perseverance, godliness, godliness, belly Kindness really kindness love notice in verse 8 if these qualities are yours and increasing they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our lord jesus christ for who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from his former sins you want assurance of salvation i think one way to have assurance of your salvation the subjective side of your salvation one way to have that is do you see this these qualities increasing in your life? Do you see yourself growing in these areas? Not perfect. God knows we're going to still be sinners and imperfect. That's not the point of this. The question is, where am I headed? Verse 10 of that same chapter, verse, chapter one, verse 10 says, therefore, brethren, be all the more, and there's our word again, diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. How can I make certain of my calling and being chosen by him? As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. That's pretty clear, friends. That's pretty clear. But diligence is the key word here. And he uses the word again down in verse 15 of chapter 1, talking about uh, his own diligence in teaching. And then he uses again in chapter 3, verse 14, where we're at this morning. My whole point is he likes the word it's an important word and it's used several times throughout the New Testament. I don't have time to go to all those examples but I know that leaders are to lead with diligence in the church. There's a lot of lazy leaders and leaders are told to lead with all diligence. It's an important word. Discipline, self-denial, self-control. I think all those things are part of that word. And then he goes on to tell them why, and this is important. This is the, this is the why. You, you know, sometimes you'll just tell your kids to do something, and you don't need to tell them why. Just do it. As they get older, you got to start telling them why, because you get asked it a hundred times. But also, it's a good thing to do. Tell them some of the why behind some of the things you're doing. Sometimes they just need to do it because they'll never understand why in a million years that you're in charge and they're not. But you just say it, right? But Peter tells you why. He tells you why to be diligent. Notice. Be diligent to be found by Him. See it? To be found by Him. That's the idea that one day when He returns, He is going to find you. He is going to evaluate you. That's the idea of the word found by you, found by Him. To be ready to be evaluated by Christ. That He will discern something about you. What is He going to discover? That's the question when He comes. What is he going to discover about me and about you? And I think this could have reference to 2 Corinthians 10, 5, the bema seat of Christ when he gives out reward. It's not, a, it's not a time of judgment. Christ is not going to come back and judge you regarding sin. That is never going to be the issue in your life. Understand that. I'm not saying that. Sin has been dealt with at the cross. If you're justified, sin is not in the picture at all. That's not what this is about. It's a time of reward. Is it going to be a time when you are ashamed? Is it going to be a time when you shrink back? It's going to be a time that he will evaluate you and reward you. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Don't have time, excuse me, 5.10. Don't have time to look at that in detail this morning, but that is what Paul talks about in that chapter. We will stand before that one day. We will face Christ one day. We will see him as he is one day. And we will be recompensed, recompensed for our deeds. And there could be regret. There could be ashamed at his coming for you and I as a believer. That's the warning that we're getting from this. We're getting that kind of warning. And once again, it's not that we're going to be perfect But it's the realization that are things that we just never never dealt with. Sins we never ever dealt with. That is the reason Peter says, be diligent. And then he lists the virtues to be diligent in. Okay, you're looking at 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 3, 14, 2 Peter 3, 14. The first virtue he puts there is this. In peace. Be diligent to be found by him in peace. Not a positional peace. You're already at peace with God. The war between you and God, if you're a Christian, the war between you and God is over. The peace offering was Christ. There is no war between you and God if you're a Christian. Christ is our peace. We're not talking about positional peace here. Uh, We're talking about a clear conscience peace, subjective peace. Do you have a clear conscience before God? Is my conscience clear that uh, I have nothing to be nervous about when he comes? I'm not nervous about anything, about his coming. There's nothing between me and God that I would be nervous that he walked, Christ came into this room this day, the skies opened and he appeared and I would not be nervous about it. That's what we mean by that. It can also be mean to be at peace with others. It could be talking about peace that you have with God and peace with others and the unity, uh, resolve conflicts. Maybe uh, that you've taken the time and energy and been diligent to resolve conflicts, forgiving others, moving towards others, not away from others, not allowing walls to build up to where you have no unity no expressions of unity preserving the unity of the body of christ are we pursuing this with diligence are we pursuing peace clear conscience before god and then spotless spotless is the idea of being morally pure second timothy six fourteen says keep the commandments without stain or reproach that's the idea no stain, no reproach, nobody could throw anything at you and it'd be st- it would stick to you, spotless. In that passage in 1 Timothy 6, he says, then you do this until the appearing of Christ. Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be diligent to be clean and unstained by the world, James calls it, and notice the next word is blameless, not perfect. No, never never interpret that to mean perfect. There's no way we're going to do any of this perfectly until we see him as he is. But blameless, we're diligent to pursue these things without stain. We we want, we don't want to be ashamed. We don't want to be ashamed the moment the sky splits. We don't want to be saying to ourselves, I wish I hadn't been doing that when he came back. You know what I'm saying? this is tough. <laughs> I wish I had just yelled at my kids right before we walked in the, through the skies, I, you know, or whatever. I wish I would have been kinder to my wife. I mean, all, all this is is the, the accountability. Nobody is going to be perfect. God knows our hearts. But we're to work so that when he comes, it will, it will not be the low points. Not to earn his favor. We're not trying to earn his favor. God has done everything for us. Jesus has done everything for us to satisfy God's favor for us. God has earned all the favor with God that I'll ever need. But because you love him, be diligent to be spotless and blameless. It's an interesting play on words because back in chapter 2, the uh, false teachers were those who had spots and blemishes. 2.14, the spots and blemishes, they were known by their spots and blemishes. They were unclean. And this should remind us of the Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament? You couldn't bring an animal that was blemished, uh, an animal that was in any way unclean. And in the New Testament, Christ was the spotless Lamb of God. So this is the theme. And I guess when you think about this, you think about, well, what is it I need to get rid of in my life that's hindering me from diligently pursuing these things? What is it I need to add to my life that's hindering me from pursuing these things? What is it that keeps me from running the race? What's the encumbrance that keeps me from running the race? What do I need to lay aside? That's what it makes you ask yourself. What is it I need to... uh, keep from getting entangled in all the time? What sin is that? I, I've talked a lot about this subject lately in our men's uh, Tuesday morning Bible study, but um, he talks about mortifying the flesh in, in Romans eight thirteen, killing the flesh, killing the deeds of the flesh, I think we have to understand the severity of our problem. I think we have to understand the severity of, of what's, what's going on, that this is an issue of our heart. It's not something external, because all of us can look so good on the outside, but it's what's going on in our heart. I don't know what's going on in your heart. You might look at me and think, oh, he's just doing great. He looks great or whatever. And I can look at you the same way, but that's not my heart. You can't see that. That's the part of me that God looks at. And that's the part that motivates a lot of my bad behavior and sinful behavior and impurity. It's my heart. My heart is the problem. And so it's a, it's a serious thing. It's, a, it's not just abstaining from certain outward things. That's important, yes. But it's getting to the root issues of my heart. And asking and asking God. And I read a devotion this morning by Spurgeon, and, and, and just the whole idea that if, I've got, if I'm struggling with anger, and if I'm struggling with covetousness, and I'm struggling with lust, and I'm, I need to get to the heart of those things, and I need to take them to the cross to, of Christ, and I need to plead, say, God, I want to be serious about this. Jesus said in, John, in Matthew chapter 5 if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. He's talking about not so much, not literally cutting off and taking out your eye. He's talking about the severity of our problem. The severity of our problem is that it is something that needs to be dealt with in a severe way. It's not something we just throw sticks at and think it's going to be better just because I cried about it or... I said I was sorry, or whatever else we do on the outside. We kill the deeds of the body, and it's a lifelong process. I'm not talking about something that's easy. I'm talking about warfare. I'm talking about putting off and putting on. I'm talking about breaking bad habits. I'm talking about breaking bad habitual ways of thinking. I'm talking about abstaining, fleeing, words like that. We make no provision for the flesh, Romans 13 says. The word I I used with our men this past week was the word portals. Portals. Holes. Holes where sin gets in, temptation gets in, blocking up the portals of our life, blocking up the portals so the temptation can't even come in. Because we leave so many openings, we give so many opportunities for the flesh. We have to say, I'm not going to accommodate that anymore. I'm not going to accommodate that anymore. I'm shutting up that portal into my life that causes me to get entangled in sin. We need to fix our eyes on Christ and meditate on His Word. We need to stick, stop hanging around people that pull us down in that sense, uh, cause us to be tempted to sin. But going to places that cause us to be tempted to sin—those are portals. Entertainment. We need to. We need God's strength to kill, the deeds of the flesh. We can't do it ourselves. Your flesh cannot tame your flesh. Just give up. Get all the self-help books you want. Flesh does not tame. Flesh does not kill. Flesh does not change flesh. Just give up with that one. The world thinks it does. No, it's taking it to the cross. It's being diligent to see it, to identify it, to repent of it and to cut it off, to close up the portal, not enough just to feel bad about it, sad I got caught, or sorry I hurt your feelings or whatever. It's getting to the very heart of these things. We need to renew our minds. He has called us to be a holy people. We, we sometimes think those are big words that can't be reached. I just, it says it too many times for me to think, oh, he just said that, he didn't really mean that for us, we can't ever reach it anyway. Well, you know what, we are holy positionally, but we can have cleanness and purity. We can, because he said we can, and because he's given us the Holy Spirit, to enable us to do that. And I'm not saying it's an easy battle. It's a horrible, difficult difficult battle because it's in our hearts. If it was a matter of just shutting off things out here, that'd be fine, but it's not. That's what the Pharisees thought. Just don't do the act and you're fine. No. No, it's much deeper. It's much deeper and we have to get serious and recognize the severity of it and then he says one more thing in 2 Peter 3, verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And this, is, this is interesting. This is just... Uh, he is saying, you think of salvation like this. He says, you think of salvation, uh, or you think of the Lord's patience, the why, reason why he hasn't come yet. He says, you think of that like this. You think of it as salvation. You think of the reason he is being patient is because it's giving people the opportunity to be saved, like we saw back in 2 Peter 3.9. It's giving people the opportunity to be saved. It's giving people the opportunity to be sanctified. So when you think of the, the Lord's delay in his coming, his patience in his coming, it's because, like we said earlier, he wants to save people from the judgment to come. Don't think like the false teachers think, oh, he said it, but he forgot about it. He said it, but he didn't mean it that way. He said it, but he's never going to do it. That's what the false teachers were saying. No, you regard his patience as salvation. When you think about the fact that he is delaying his coming, and don't think of it, he's delaying his coming. Think of it as, because he's not late. Think of it as he's patient, forbearing. There are people that he wants to save, and until they're saved, he will not come back. There are for you and I, as we wait for His coming, we are to be sanctified, becoming more and more like Him, as we prepare one day to be in that place where righteousness dwells. So He's given us three here in Second Peter chapter three: be expectant, verse twelve; proclaim the gospel. That's another one of our duties. Verse 12, verse 14, diligently pursue a holy life. And then he says one more that I will just introduce quickly, but we will, oh, I have an illustration. I forgot to read my illustration. I have an illustration that I want to read for you. This article was in the 1950s when Eisenhower was president Eisenhower was present, Dwight Eisenhower. He was vacationing in Denver, and he read a newspaper report by a reporter who was reporting on a situation, but it was really an invitation to the president. You understand what I'm saying? It was a newspaper article that was reporting on a particular situation, but it was also, Mr. President, why don't you go see this little boy? The little boy's name was Paul Henry Haley, and he was dying of cancer. And here's his picture six years old. He's got his little cowboy outfit on, and he's got his arm around his mother. That was the newspaper article. The president saw that. He says, I, The article said, Mr. President, I'm writing this story to you because he doesn't know how to write. I'm writing this story to you because he would like to see you, Ike. It was the nickname for Eisenhower. He says, and he doesn't know it. That's his dying wish. He's going to die. So President Eisenhower was bigger and better than even Hopalong Cassidy to this guy, according to the newspaper article, who was a popular cowboy hero at that time. Eisenhower read the article. He told his aides. He said, let's go see Paul Haley. He showed up at their front door with his limousine, American flags flying, fenders on the fenders in an August morning. He pulls up, gets out of the car, walks up to the house, and the President of the United States knocks on the front door. Paul's stepfather, Donald Haley, answered the door wearing old blue jeans, a dirty shirt, and a day's growth of beard on his face. And he says, can I help you? To which the president said, is Paul here? Tell him the president would like to see him. Little Paul walked around his stepfather's little boy. The little boy walked around his stepfather's legs, looked into the face of the president who kneeled down to shake his hand. He was wide-eyed and unbelieving. And he, the president comes into the house, into their small living room. And he smiled and talked with Paul for a few minutes. And they walked outside. Neighbors by this time are just filling the yard. Takes Paul into the limousine, shows him around the limousine. He hugged the little boy and said goodbye. And the president drove off. Reporters were asking all kinds of questions. What a surprise for this family. You guys must have been incredibly surprised. And the only thing the father could say was this. How am I ever going to forget standing there dressed like I was in those jeans and old dirty shirt and an unshaven face to meet the President of the United States? Yeah, I can agree with that. But think about it. Think about the parallel of what I'm saying this morning. One day each of us will stand before Christ, the authority of the universe, much greater than any president, the Creator, And we don't know when that's going to happen, but the Bible says we'll all stand before him one day. For the unbeliever, it will be a time of judgment for sin. For the unbeliever, it will be a time of being thrown and cast into hell. For the unbeliever who dies without Christ, it will be falling into the hands of the living God and facing eternal punishment. Not so for the believer, but he will have to face Christ. And we will see him. And the question, I guess, for all of us is to ask, is there anything, anything I would be ashamed of, anything I would be ashamed of to one day stand in the presence of my Lord As he, when He comes back to get me? We do not want to be those who shrink back. For the unbeliever, if you confess your sins and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know salvation. If you're an unbeliever here this morning and you don't know Jesus, let me promise you this, he is coming one day. You could die before he comes, but one day you will stand before him. And if he has not paid for your sin through faith in what Christ has done on the cross for your sin, then you will face an eternal hell. So I, we invite you to put your faith in Christ this morning. And to believers, I just say, let's be diligent. Let's be diligent as we wait for his coming as we expect his coming, let's be diligent. Let's be diligent. We'll pick it up here next time. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, for this opportunity we have to look at these verses and to consider them. God, I know that as we think about our, our own personal lives, God, we're challenged. Anytime we read wor- words like blameless and spotless and be pure and be clean and be Holy as I am holy. Those words that we sang the song this morning is, are easy words to mouth. They're easy words to say. But God, it takes diligence. It takes the power of your spirit working in us. It takes everything we have, God, to close the portals of our life, to, to fight sin, to, to fight and not give sin an opportunity to kill the deeds of the flesh. Those are words that we read in the scripture and they sound so impossible and so difficult because we know what our flesh is like. I pray, God, that we would have a, a new sense of, of your strength in our lives as we, re- as we reflect on the fact that we have the, the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the power of the cross. We have your forgiveness and grace to grow in. May we be those, God, who desire to be holy as you are holy. We love you and thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.